This week, we have something uh, that happens every so often in our country happening, and that is called an election. election. There you go. And so tonight, uh, I thought it'd be good for us to talk a little bit about politics. And uh, some people say, you can't talk about politics in church. Um, hopefully, I lead us down a path where we're able to do that. But I've titled tonight's talk, Politics, Unity, in Diversity, uh, Christian Thoughts Towards This Week's Election. How many of you know that we think differently? Anyone? How many of you know that we don't always agree on everything, right? We don't always think the same. Sometimes that causes us to kind of push back at each other. Or is that just me? Anyone? Okay. We can push back at each other, we can get frustrated, we can get angry. Let me give you an example of how human nature, I think, sometimes plays itself out. Um, put yourself in a holiday scene, okay? Christmas or Thanksgiving, which is coming up right away, and you're sitting around with everybody. My apologies for that. You're sitting around with everybody, and everything's going good. The family's together. You're having, you know, coffee. You're relaxing. You're watching movies, maybe football. Just having a good time. Everything's going good. It's cheery. It's fun. It's exactly how family get-togethers during the holidays should be. Just picture, picture yourself in that nice scene, that nice moment where you're with your family, and... Uh, Nothing really matters, and time just kind of goes by because you feel so relaxed at things. Now, those are some of the best moments, aren't they? I enjoy that. I enjoy those times with my family, but sometimes those times can take a turn, especially when somebody has a bright idea and says, well, how about let's play a board game, okay? Now, some of you laugh because you already know where I'm going with this, okay? You already know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't get this. Some of you, your families get along. When you play board games, you look much like the family on the left of that screen. But some of you get what I'm talking about, right? And your family's competitive. Your, all sorts of new rules start being invented during the process of a new game, right? Things that you've never heard of before are common knowledge, right, as far as how the game goes. And what was a good time, what was a special time, a relaxing time, has all of a sudden turned into a bit of a war, right? And everyone goes to bed awkward, and hopefully coffee and breakfast fixes it the next day. And uh, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. But we all have preferences. We all are competitive at times. We all want to be right, if I could say it like that. What are some things that we have preferences about or think differently about? Let me give you a few examples on the screen. Why don't you vote with me? How do you feel about this one, this next slide? Coke or Pepsi? Who are the Coke people in the house? Okay, I see like eight hands. Pepsi? There we go. Wow, Pepsi showed some enthusiasm, and that's where I land, so I'm good with that, okay? Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, Mac versus PC. Where's the Mac people in the room? Oh, wow. PC? Wow, that was overwhelming. That's crazy. I didn't expect that to happen. I thought Mac would take that one, but... I guess not everyone thinks like me. Go figure, right? Uh, next slide. This one can cause a little controversy today. But uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers or Saskatchewan Rough Riders, where's the Bomber fans in the house? On the platform. <laughs> On the platform. I'm not saying anything because I need this message to unite us, okay? Uh, where's the Rough Rider fans in the house? Anyone? 
<laughs> All right. I trust everyone online is weighing in in the comment section as well. I'm going to let the writers have that one, right? Because we had the two games. So anyways, I'm just going to keep going here. Sorry. Wow, that was harsh. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm going to give you an opportunity to forgive me at the end of this talk. I promise you, okay? But legit though, legit, we have opinions, we have preferences, and sometimes those things can cause moments like that. And sometimes they can even go further. Sometimes they can divide us, sometimes they can cause us to fight, sometimes they can cause us to argue. Sometimes they can straight out cause even worse than that. Now, I'm, in a second here, I'm gonna put another slide up, but I don't want you audibly to answer on this one, okay? I don't want you to weigh in on this one. I don't want hands raised. I don't want you saying any names. I just want you to answer this in your heart today, okay? Um, we have an election coming up. You can throw the slide up. And here are six of the parties represented that are running in this year's election. Now, when you look at that picture in your own heart, you could probably answer to what your preferred prime minister candidate there is. You could probably take it a step further and answer what your preferred political party is. We all have preferences on this. We all have opinions. Likely even just looking at that picture might frustrate some of you, but please stay with me, okay? Um, it's one thing to have different preferences and thoughts, but when do these things go from being mere divisions, I mean, sorry, differences of thought and actually start causing division in our lives? Do politics ever divide people, yes or no? What is it about politics that can get us to not only disagree at best, but perhaps start writing off each other at worst? And for Christians, how do we live in the midst of political times and tension, knowing that we won't always see things the same way? Each one of us sees things a little bit different. And even greater, what are Jesus' desires for his followers and how they behave and treat each other during an election time? Those are some of the things I want us to look at this evening. You see, the scriptures show us what is dear to the heart of Jesus. And we're going to start by looking at the greatest commandment. When Jesus was being pressed by the religious teachers, they were trying to trick him. They were trying to get him to say something that would uh, get him in trouble. And they asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What is the greatest thing that we can do? And we read about it in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 34. Here's what Jesus responded by saying. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so in order to follow Jesus' commands, we're going to have to be people who I think filter our lives, not through our political beliefs, but rather on what Jesus said and on what he spoke about. Where we can come to a place where we can disagree politically and yet love one another unconditionally. Not talking just, you know, tolerating people of other parties or other beliefs, but are you willing and am I willing to put our political filter behind instead of in front of our faith? And are we ever in danger of doing that? Are you willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus 
create space between you, your political party, your party platform, and your party candidate? Are you able to do that? I think for a lot of Christians, even that can be difficult sometimes. You see, we become so convinced that our party or beliefs of choice are biblically based, and then the people on the other side believe that the party that they follow also is biblically based, and likely, if I really, really, really wanted to, I could take probably the same scriptures and start applying them to every single party and start making an argument why my party is biblically based and why theirs isn't. The trouble is, is that the Bible is not a political party. And what Jesus said is truth. Amen? And it dare not be in submission to our political or worldly ideologies, but it has authority even all over all of that. Are you with me? It has authority over even all of that. You see, we need to filter life, not through our political filter, but through our Jesus filter. And when you do this, you'll notice sometimes how they really can be at odds. And there really can be tension there. You see, it's so easy to be divided. It's so easy to assume that God and Jesus are in lockstep support of wherever we're at and whatever we believe. But we read in Isaiah chapter 55 here, these words from God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. And so at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't need to be getting behind us and getting behind what we believe, but we as disciples mature in Christ need to get behind him and what he believes and what he teaches. That's the authority of our life. And so apparently Jesus wasn't surprised or caught off guard by what would eventually come among his followers with the temptation to sometimes be divided among things. He knew that there'd be a lot of division and ways in which his followers could possibly get divided. So much so that today I want us to look at his final prayer recorded in the book of John, um, chapter 17, if you want to go there. Now, this is basically a, a man's final plea and final words, right? These mean a lot. These are important. Often I hear people say that when people speak, you know, before they're about to die, they're not, they're not talking about the office and work they have to do. But this is like the serious, like most important stuff on their hearts that they're going to begin to address, right? Final words mean a lot, and they reveal a person's heart and their priorities, what's most important. And Jesus is about to face the cross here. He's about to face difficulties, all sorts of sorrow. And so what does he talk about in his final words? What was so important to him that he felt he needed to address this with the Father before he left the earth? Well, let's look. Let's read through the final prayers of Jesus where he prays for, for all those who would follow him. In John chapter 17, verse 11 He's talking here about just his disciples, the inner core, the 12. And he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So that they may be one. Say one. 
You see, Jesus is praying for his disciples here, the inner core that they wouldn't get divided, that they wouldn't start devouring each other, but he prayed that they would be one. Jesus knew they were stronger, united together than they ever could be divided apart. And what amazes me most here is what Jesus isn't praying for. You see, Jesus isn't praying right now for physical protection. He's not praying for deliverance and an opportunity to avoid the pain and the trouble that the cross is going to bring. But he's praying for his disciples and he's praying that they'd be one. This is what Jesus was most concerned about was their unity and their oneness. Because Jesus knew as long as they would walk in step with him together and with their heavenly father, then the world would be changed. But if they ever got divided, then things could stall out a little bit. And the mission of God of the kingdom could be affected. Let's fast forward to verse 20 in John 17. Fast forward a few verses and Jesus is now praying for us. He's now praying for all who will ever believe in his name. All who would follow him. The future generation of believers leading up to us. And Jesus prays for us and it's not what we pray for us, okay? And my hunch is, is that none of us ask God in our prayer time for what Jesus asked God for here in his, in his time of prayer. All that often, Okay. Maybe we do sometimes, but maybe it hasn't become a priority for us to pray this way, which could be a problem. You know, I was thinking this week that maybe if the church and if Christians, maybe if people had been begging God for this over and over and over and over again, maybe things would be in a better spot all around. But in John 17, verse 20, Jesus says this. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If I had to ask a question tonight, no one answered this out loud, but how many times, how much do you, how often do you spend time in your prayer time praying that the church would be one? Praying for the unity of the body. Praying that we wouldn't be divided, but that Jesus would bring us together even in the midst of our diversity and differences for the unity of the body of Christ. You see, that was a convicting thought for me as I considered that a couple years ago. Because as I thought about that, I thought, I never pray for this. Maybe I need to. And here Jesus is praying for all of those who would follow him. All of them without distinction, without favoritism, all of them. All of them, rich, poor, free, tax collectors, etc., right? Conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Green Party, etc., etc., etc. Privilege, unprivileged, no matter where they were from or what they experienced, he said, I pray that all of them, all, all these people with different experiences and different opinions, different worldviews, I pray that somehow they may be one that would be one that they would live so united that they would live united which to us seems almost impossible but to Jesus this was so important for the witness of the church to the world around them he goes as far as connecting it our unity as a church to others being able to see him and being able to know him that he's the one the father sent to save the world 
Somehow our unity and our ability to stick together seems to send a message to the world around us about this. May they be one so that the world can see me, Jesus says. You see, in times where being divided is easier than ever, I don't even have to talk about the election. We all have gone through a time here, right? What an amazing thing it would be for Christians to say, regardless of our opinions and our differences and our situations, we are going to love one another despite it all. Because what really matters, what absolutely matters in the kingdom at the end of the day is that Jesus would be known and that Jesus would be seen through his church. Amen? That Jesus would be known even more than who I vote for, even more than whose ideas I prefer or what platform seems more desirable to me. Regardless of where we stand politically, we recognize um, that there are things that, that these are things that shape the kingdom of the earth and are not first and foremost our hope. Okay, I'm going to say that. That's not our hope. And we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and therefore maintaining unity and treat, tr- treating one another with love, that takes priority. That takes priority over any of it. A church living in unity seems to communicate the love of Jesus to the world in ways that we might not even realize. And church, let's make it our aim to protect that. But sometimes doing so is difficult. I get it. Sometimes doing so is difficult because we're all unique and we don't all think the same, do we? In a magazine article a few years back, a Fast Company magazine article a few years back, the term filter bubble was was kind of born. And this describes an algorithm on Facebook that created an echo chamber for people to see only the content that they would most likely agree with. How many of you have noticed this or experienced this before? How many of you have noticed this in a creepy way? Like, you're talking about hot tubs or something, okay? And you're not even on your computer, just your phone's near you. And you go on Facebook and there's like, boom, 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 sponsored ads with hot tubs everywhere, right? And some of this stuff is just wacky, and I'm not going to get into it tonight, but the filter bubble, in a lot of ways, is a good image, I think, sometimes, for what's happening in our times. Because we typically surround ourselves with ideas, interests, and political thoughts that reinforce what we already believe. This is often what we surround ourselves with. And so this sometimes, I think, if we're not careful, can lead to a brazen demonizing or writing off of people who think differently than we do. And it's not a stretch to to suggest that we're increasingly distanced from those with whom we disagree with, right? But this was not Jesus' approach. This is not what Jesus had in mind at all. Think about it. When Jesus called together his 12 disciples, the people who were going to be a part of his inner core and would change the world with him, he did not call together 12 men who looked the same, who thought the same, who had similar ideologies, not at all. In fact, Jesus called together 12 men who would have had serious reservations at times, immediately with one another. Jesus put together a group of people who most certainly wouldn't have followed each other on Instagram, okay? Or on Facebook, 
or retweeted one another, if I could say it like that. Yet in the forming of the 12, he was symbolically making a statement that in the kingdom of God, a new kind of family was being created. And it would not follow the ideals of the world or of human nature. But it was the kingdom that God wanted. And so let me just show you an example of some of the tension that the 12 might have faced. In Matthew chapter 10, we see a list of the disciples as Jesus is choosing them. And I highlighted two for you. Someone by the name of Matthew, the tax collector, and another who went by Simon, the zealot. Now, these two wouldn't have got along, okay? There was nothing similar about these two. In fact, these two were on the exact opposite side of the page and likely politically. Matthew worked for the government. Simon was someone who hated the government. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans, often at the expense of hurting and ripping off his own people. And Simon rebelled against the Romans, okay? Matthew was wealthy because of this. And Simon, history suggests, would have been working class. Matthew made a living taking advantage of people like Simon. And Simon made a living trying to kill people like Matthew. And Jesus brings them together and says, you two are going to be a part of my core that's going to change the world. You two are going to be a part of the team that I send out into the world. And yet, despite all these differences and all this working against them, Matthew and Simon somehow were able to remain connected. But catch this, it cost them something. It would cost them something in order for that to happen. Matthew would have to stop taking advantage of people like Simon. And Simon would have to embrace a different view, if I can say it like that, of revolution. Despite their incredible differences, they were able to live together in unity, but in order to do so, it would cost them something. How many of you hate it when it costs us something, right? That's difficult sometimes. But how many of us are willing to count the cost Sometimes laying down what would be our perceived rightness in order to love and be in community with others. And this is the essence of the family that Jesus was creating. In order to love and remain in unity with one another, it will always cost us something. It always does. And it takes maturity that, to realize that even before that which divides us, in this case today we're talking about political views, even before that which divides us, the scripture instructs us to love one another. Love one another. And the scripture doesn't say love one another unless, fill in the blank. Love one another unless they vote different than you. Love one another unless they have different opinions than you. Love one another unless they look different than you. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says to love one another. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this. It says, above all. Say above all. Above all. Above all. All means all. Above everything. Okay? Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
I like how the NLT words this. It says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. You see, the call to love God and love people is not somehow nullified when people are different, think different, and are different from us. But as disciples, as Christians, we are called to love people because God has indeed loved us. And we show grace to others because we ourselves have experienced grace. Amen? In Ephesians 4, we read this. It says, Be kind and tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Church, this is maturity. This is how disciples live and walk with one another. Whether they agree on everything or not, this is how we live together. Let me illustrate a relationship to you from a movie. How many of you have seen this movie before? Anyone know what this is? The young people, I might lose you on this one. I apologize, but I'm going to try to explain it, okay? This movie was called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You have Steve Martin, who played a character by the name of Neil Page. And on the right, you have John Candy, rest in peace, uh, who played the character Del Griffith, right? And this movie's hilarious if you haven't seen it yet. It's a comedy from the 80s where these two have a chance meetup on their travels, and then chaos absolutely ensues after that, right? Um, it eventually turns into them trying to travel home together for Thanksgiving so that they can be with their respected families at the time. And as most good movies do, chaos ensues, and John Candy's character, Del Griffith, does almost everything possible to annoy, disrupt, anger, cost a lot of money to the other guy, Steve Martin's character, Neil. And uh, these two are as different as they come. They, they have different lives. Neil, Neil on the left is very much a business guy, works in the business field, very distinguished, you know. And then John Candy is kind of like this drive-by sales guy who's getting into all sorts of shenanigans, all sorts of trouble, bringing them into all sorts of ruckus. And these two are as different as they come. They have different lives, backgrounds, social status. And all the way until the end of the movie, Neil... Steve Martin's character, sees Dell as an absolute inconvenience and as nothing but trouble. And he tried to ditch him many times, but he just can't seem to get away from him. And then he has an epiphany towards the end. They say goodbye after a good night of bonding, and he's sitting on a train, and he starts to recall some of the things that Dell said to him. He starts to recall some of the words that John Candy had been telling him throughout their time together. And spending time with him has, has changed him, and it's made him think differently about Dell. And he has this moment where he realizes something isn't right, and so he jumps off the train, runs to see Dell, and learns that this whole time that he's been with Dell, Dell's been talking about his wife and has been talking about what he's doing, and he finds out that his wife had actually been dead for a long time, and that Dell was homeless, and he didn't have a home. And Neil has like this Scrooge moment where he realizes that he'd made life all about himself, all about what he wanted, all about what was comfortable for him, that he hadn't even taken time to even care about Dell. And he started to have a deep regret about how he treated him. And the movie ends on a good note where Neil invites Dell to come home with him to his family to spend the holidays. And there's a scene at the end where they're both carrying this trunk that uh, John Candy carries around. 
And uh, there's so much in that, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But the movie gets me thinking sometimes, why is it that we want to avoid the relationships that stretch us the most? When I watch that movie, I think to myself, you know, who's the Del Griffith in my life today? That person who, if I see them that way, I start walking this way, right? Call comes in, put the phone down. Don't want to deal with that right now. They're so radically different than me. Think differently than me. Just, it's, it's awkward being with them. You know, the person who actually annoys me, you know, do I have that relationship in my life today? Do I pursue relationships like that? Do you hang out and associate with, associate with those who are different than you on purpose, if I could say it like that? Well, maybe you say to me, those people can't annoy me, pastor, because I don't have any friends who are like that. And maybe that's the problem. Could that just be just part of the problem? You see, God never intended for us to be the same, okay? Life would be way too boring. Neither did he intend for us to live alone. Perhaps the relationships that challenge us the most can have the greatest reward in our maturity and growth as people, as Christians. Perhaps the relationships that stretch us and cause us to lean on Jesus for help the most, maybe those are the ones that can really help us mature as disciples you see, in the movie I referenced here, Dell wasn't necessarily the friendship or relationship that Neil wanted. But in the end, we see that Dell was actually the friendship and relationship that Neil actually needed. And that he needed to come across someone like that to learn about himself. And life would look different for him after this encounter. And what if that's true in our lives? What if God brings people into our paths who think differently than us, function differently, have different interests, skills, and even political thoughts? And what if in the midst of how odd, intense, and difficult sometimes that can feel, God is inviting us into a place where we can live out the great commandment of loving him and loving another person and loving each other? You see, in relationships... The win is not being right. I had lunch with someone this past week, and he asked me what I was talking about this weekend, and I kind of gave him a little synopsis of my talk. And I told him I was talking about politics and sometimes our disagreements and how we see things differently. And he looked at me across the table and laughed, and he goes, that's us. We see nothing alike in politics, right? And I thought to myself, I never even thought about that because I find you so pleasant, right? I never even thought about that, that we are as completely opposite as you can possibly be on the political spectrum. But here's the thing about relationships. In relationships, being right isn't the win, but the relationship being healthy is the win. Amen? And in our lives and in how we deal with one another in the church, being right isn't the win, but loving other people, Jesus says, seems to be the win. And so back to unity. Unity in our churches. This is what should drive us, church, because this is what Jesus had prayed for. And Jesus knew that my church would be so diverse, would be so international, of so many different languages and so many different cultures, that if there was any way that they could remain one, that's what he knew had to happen. And he prayed it before he went to the cross. And Jesus prayed for oneness, not because of us specifically, but because of what he wanted to accomplish through us. Okay? Of what he wanted to accomplish 
through his church so that the world, so that those outside of the faith, so that those outside of the church, when they see the unity in spite of all the diversity inside these churches, then they may believe and be convinced that you, Father, have sent me. And that was Jesus' desire for us. And I believe it's his desire for us today. You see, this isn't just some add-on. This isn't just some desirable idea. But Jesus' final prayer reveals how critical this was to his mission, how critical our unity and how we treat each other, how that communicates something so large to the world around us that perhaps we're not even conscious of it today. And this is the way forward, Jesus said. The world has never seen unity like this. This will get the attention of people in the world, diverse people committed to living together in unity and keeping that commandment of loving God and loving people. Jesus said like this in John 13. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. This was a new command. This wasn't a new suggestion. This was our marching orders. Because of your love for one another, even though you're not like each other, the world's going to see that and recognize that, wow, Jesus sure changed some hearts and sure changed some lives. You see, in John 17, Jesus said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Brought to complete unity, not political unity, friends but unity of purpose in Christ. That our relationship with Jesus would redefine everything about us. And everything seemed to ride on the followers of Jesus' unity, not on their politics, not on their worldview, not on their culture, not on their preferences. But if the world is going to change and the church needs to live in unity, united, one purpose, one message, one command, love one another. And because this is the truth, church, and I heard this before somewhere, and I wrote it down, and I forgot who said it, but I think it makes a good point. And as we look towards an election this week, let me say this. Your political candidate will win or lose based on how Canadians vote on a single Tuesday in September, okay? But the church will win or lose based on our behavior every single day before and after that. Your political party will win based on whether Canadian citizens vote a certain way on Tuesday, but Jesus will win. Jesus will be made known to others. Jesus will be lifted up based on how you and I treat each other before and after that event. And that's what really matters. Amen? And that's what God has called us to. We must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. Remember, it was Christianity, these unique upside-down doctrines that shaped Western civilizations to begin with. And it was Jesus who laid the groundwork for the dignity and the love for each person. And the hope of the world, I hate to break it to you, is not found in any political party, but the hope of the world is found in the message and in the teachings and in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If you do, why in the world would we ever opt for something less than that? And why in the world would we ever allow ourselves to be divided over the things of the earth when our priority, first and foremost, is those of the kingdom? 
the kingdom of God. Why would we as followers of an eternal king allow ourselves to be divided by temporary things and temporary political leaders and platforms and lesser kings? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by fear in politics? Why would you allow any political view, a view that you probably one day might outgrow and maybe even abandon, okay? Why would we allow any strong politically held view to divide us? When Jesus' single command is, don't you dare mistreat somebody created in my image, but love one another. Vote how you want, but don't you dare mistreat others, those for whom I've come for, whom I love. And this is God's will for us and for every church. And so church, because this is what Jesus prayed for, I leave with us three suggestions tonight, okay? That we could take with us this week. Number one, would you pray what Jesus prayed? Would you pray for oneness? How often do you pray for oneness? Is the unity of the church something that often comes up in your prayer time? Maybe this week pray something like this. Heavenly Father, please make us one so that we can love one another. Heavenly Father, please make us one so that we can influence many. Heavenly Father, make us one so that above all, Jesus, people through your church would see you. You see, this is about the world taking notice. This isn't about church growth. It's about the world taking notice because Jesus prayed, if they stay one, then the world will take notice of that. And he asked the Father for it. Number two, look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree politically. Actually, go out of your way and try to do this. Will it be frustrating? Probably. Will it be challenging? Good chance. Will it sometimes stretch you? I guarantee it, right? You know, and, and some of us are thinking, well, I don't even know anyone like that. Well, that's the issue. We can't even understand where people are coming from if we're not willing to listen and talk and sit down and love one another, right? That right there should kind of get you started. But who's that person in your life who can use a friend? Who's that person in your life who maybe annoys you a little bit and thinks different than you? But how can this perhaps be a good thing to, to befriend them and to love on them this week? This is how, church, we mature as disciples. And so disagree politically, but love unconditionally. And pray for unity and number three, after the election is over, I'm just going to throw this out here. Follow the words of 1 Timothy 2, right? Which tell us, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and all holiness. After it's all said and done, let's find ourselves praying for those who are leading our nation. They could really use our prayers. And so tonight... Just as we conclude, I want us to have a Selah moment. A Selah moment where we just take a couple minutes and we just stay quiet and we look to God and we ask him to search our hearts. Reveal to us anything that maybe comes to mind. And in this Selah moment, if you could just put the slide up for me, I want you to take a moment and pray that God would help us walk in unity as this church. Even amidst our differences and diversity, Perhaps you need to ponder someone who is different than you that you need to befriend. Maybe this is that moment for you to have that conversation with God. 
Perhaps you need to pray for God's help to put his word first above all, even above our preferences and opinion. And maybe God will just speak to us and lead us and bring us closer to him in this. Church, God loves you. He loves the world around us. And his prayer is not that we would be biting and devouring and bickering and causing great divisions with one another, but that we would love each other. Amen. That we'd walk united and through that, the world can see Jesus. So have a moment with him. Go to him in prayer for a few moments.